Why the Democrats plan to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad idea. Plus, six questions to ask about critical race theory. And Hunter Biden uses the N-word, but the anti-racists don't seem to care. Also, a North Korean defector and a survivor of Mao's communist China, two different people, warn about wokeism in the United States. It's chilling. Plus, for locals, VIPs only, a stunning mask study you won't hear on big tech platforms. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Okay, the only time Democrats ever seem to care about taxation without representation is when they're trying to make D.C. the 51st state. Speaking of your internet security, is that what we were talking about? Speaking of your internet security, let's talk about ExpressVPN for a moment. There are a lot of things I search for online, and I'm sure this applies to you as well, that aren't anybody's business. It's your web browser. What you search for is private, or it ought to be. Your internet service provider can still see every single website that you've ever visited. Did you know that? That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. Internet service providers in the U.S. not only can see what your browsing history is, they can legally sell your information to ad companies. So ExpressVPN addresses that problem. It's an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so that your internet service provider cannot see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. It makes you feel a lot safer. It's easy to, you'll just have to tap one button and you're protected. So protect yourself online today. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Liz, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Liz. Expressvpn.com slash Liz to learn more. Protect yourself online just like I do. Highly recommend it. Okay, D.C. statehood. Um, This week was Flag Day, June 14th. Flag makers across the country are reportedly, this is according to left-wing outlets, are reportedly on standby because the Democrats in Congress are proposing to make Washington, D.C. a state. And if that were to happen, the American flag would need to be readjusted. Well, here's why making D.C. the 51st state is a terrible unconstitutional idea. And they're actually two different things. It's both a terrible idea and it's an unconstitutional idea the way the Democrats are doing it. We're also going to talk about why the Democrats taxation without representation, that's what they're claiming is the reason why they want to make D.C. a state, why that argument from the Democrats is baloney. First of all, why are the Democrats pushing for D.C. statehood? That's where we should start. Why are they trying to make D.C. the 51st state? Are they really worried about lack of representation? Well, no. The answer to that is obviously no. Otherwise, the Democrats would oppose the administrative state in our federal government, which is government bureaucrats in charge of rulemaking. These are agencies of the federal government. They make rules, essentially dictating policy, yet the bureaucrats in the administrative state are unaccountable to voters. We talked about this two weeks ago on the show, how the administrative state came from Woodrow Wilson through LBJ, through FDR, and now it's the swamp creatures. We're talking Fauci's, okay, but a lot of different Fauci's. So if the Democrats were worried about a lack of representation, then they would oppose the administrative state, but they don't. So then we have to say, okay, well, if they truly wanted representation, they would also give most of the Washington, D.C. area back to the state of Maryland. They would keep only the federal structures as the seat of the federal government. And then if they gave back that land to Maryland, then all those people that live there would be able to vote in Maryland. They would have Maryland to represent them. The representatives of Maryland would be their representatives. But the Democrats aren't against the administrative state, 
and they don't want to give back the area in D.C., surrounding D.C., to Maryland. So that speaks of an ulterior motive. Shocker, the Democrats with an ulterior motive. So their ulterior motive is obvious. They want two additional Democrat senators in the United States Senate, and this would be a given. It really would if Washington, D.C. were to become a state because the voter registration in Washington, D.C. is 76.4% Democrat and just 5.7% GOP. So there would never be a chance of a Republican senator. So when the Democrats claim that they have this, this larger purpose, this larger reason that they want, this philosophical reason almost, that they want D.C. to be a state, they're lying. They just want two senators. So it's a bad idea from a policy perspective for Republicans. It's also unconstitutional to do this the way that the Democrats are trying to do this. So they want to just pass some piece of legislation in the House and then in the Senate and then have the president sign it into law to make D.C. a state. But you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. According to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, it gives Congress uh, plenary local lawmaking power to, and I quote here, this is the Constitution, to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district. Okay, Clause 17 is what we're talking about. So it obviously starts, Congress shall have power, and then to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, this is key, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of government of the United States. So what does this tell us? It tells us that, well, first, it's un- it would be unconstitutional for the Congress to simply declare that the seat of the federal government was a state because the Constitution specifically says the seat of the government of the United States is not a state. Just read it to you. So you so you can't just do this legislatively. Also, in 1961, if you're looking at this historically, the 23rd Amendment passed, right? The 23rd Amendment gave the residents of Washington, D.C. the right to vote in presidential elections as if D.C. were a state. But that required, again, that's the 23rd Amendment. That means the Constitution was amended to give D.C. residents the right to vote in presidential elections. So how could you need a constitutional amendment to vote but not to become a state? Of course, it, it, this requires a constitutional amendment, not just congressional legislation. This is inarguable. Anybody who's saying that it just requires legislation is um, acting in bad faith. They're engaging just in political rhetoric and assuming that you're ignorant and won't do your research. Because the constitutional amendment is unlikely in this case, it would require two-thirds votes of both House and Senate and ratification by 38 states. That's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. It would require not just a simple majority and a presidential signature. And by the way, this is not just my opinion as a conservative. The Department of Justice, under both Republican and Democrat administrations, have found that D.C. statehood requires a constitutional amendment. So it's not constitutional to do it the way the Democrats are doing it. They have an ulterior motive. It's also not what the founders intended for the seat of the federal government and for good reasons. The founders intended to deny the federal capital statehood. And we should ask ourselves why, because we probably aren't taught this in school. Well, James Madison in Federalist Paper number 43 specifically said the federal capital needs to be distinct from the states. And the reason for this is to provide its own safety and maintenance. This is what he said. He said the public authority might be insulted and its proceedings interrupted with impunity if the seat of the federal government were in a state. So in other words, the seat of the federal government was intended not to be a state so that Congress and the president, too, did not have to answer to or rely on the governor of a state. Think about that for a second. Think about the corruption that that could happen if Congress and the president were reliant 
on a governor or a state legislature even of the state in which the seat of the federal government resided. So Madison goes on in Federalist Paper number 43. He said, the gradual accumulation of public improvements at the stationary residence of the government would be both too great a public pledge to be left in the hands of a single state and would create so many obstacles to a removal of the government as still further to abridge its necessary independence. What he's meaning, what he means by that, in other words, the founders didn't want the federal government to be beholden to a state or influenced unduly by a state's implicit or explicit threats of coercion. So basically, they didn't want the state to blackmail the federal government into passing a law or signing something if you're the president that would benefit that state more than others, maybe even at the detriment of other states, the detriment of the union. So it's unconstitutional. It's unwise. The founders didn't want it. And the ulterior motive of the left is very clear here. There's actually another reason too. So Washington DC area has roughly 700,000 residents. And it's supposed to, or it was intended to house government workers only temporarily. We didn't, our founders didn't create our country to have this permanent class of government bureaucrats or even permanent class career politicians. No, it was never intended to be the home of a gargantuan administrative state. The founders never envisioned so many people living and working in DC. And yes, all the more reason to restrict the power of the bloated federal government. Why would we give them more power? If Washington, D.C. was a state and it housed this permanent administrative class, the state then would be incentivized to grow the federal government to accumulate even more power. So it's unconstitutional to try to do it legislatively. It's unwise. The Democrats have an ulterior motive, and it's not what the founders envisioned. So when the Democrats claim that they just want, they don't want taxation without representation, then you ask them why they don't want to cede that land back to Maryland. Because really what they want is they just want a Senate that swings in a Democratic favor without, have, without it going back and forth, the power in the Senate going back and forth. They want to govern while ignoring the minority, in this case, Republicans. Do not fall for it. Okay, speaking of telling the truth, my good friend Lila Rose has a new book called Fighting for Life, and you can get your copy of the book today. Lila, as you know, is the founder of Live Action. She's a phenomenal activist. She's become the face of the pro-life movement, and now more than ever, we talk about this almost daily on this show, it's extremely important that we have real warriors going out into the world to make a change. Whether it's fighting for the life of unborn babies, fighting for the traditional values that America was founded on, or trying to right the injustices in the world in general. This book is your playbook for how to truly make a difference. It's based on her own experiences, which makes it so much easier to read. Lila shares how you can understand your own talents to become a leader and build a foundation for change in the face of obstacles. As I mentioned, I all the time, time and time again here, the left is doing everything they can to destroy America. And that's why this book is so important right now. Fighting for Life is what it's called. It's available now anywhere you buy books and you can get yours right now at fightingforlifebook.com, fightingforlifebook.com. I've told Lila this in person. I will tell her this on air. I'm extremely proud of her for fighting for life. I'm extremely proud of her activism. This book is amazing. And I encourage everybody, pick up your copy today, fightingforlifebook.com. Okay, Terry McAuliffe. We know him because he is a high-powered Democrat. He is a fundraiser. He's highly tied in with the Clintons. He's currently in a battle for the seat of the governor in the state of Virginia. And this is what he had to say when he was asked about critical race theory in the curriculum in schools in his state. Take a listen. 
So I, you know, listen Thank to you. what you're saying about education. I was just yeah. wondering, like, with all the Republicans are talking about, like, critical race theory, and they're making this huge deal about it, and it's all the conversation and the news with Virginia. Like, what are you going to say to all those people making education about that? Uh, that's another right-wing conspiracy. Okay. This is uh, totally made up by Donald Trump and Glenn Young. This is who they are. It's a conspiracy theory. Okay. A conspiracy theory. He said, if that's not the most insulting thing to say to voters who care about what their children are being taught, care about indoctrination, care about brainwashing, care about equality under the law, care about forming the content of children's characters versus judging them based only on their skin color. Terry McAuliffe has always been awful. He's a terrible human being. There's simply no question about that. But this is just, this is so belittling to the mental capacity of everyone who's worried about critical race theory. So here's what I want to do today. I, I, I want to pose to you or share with you six questions to ask about critical race theory to your school board members, to teachers teaching this, to politicians, to pundits, to any adherent or defender of critical race theory. Here are six questions to ask to really unpack the reality of what critical race theory is. Because what the left does right now is they're trying to deflect. They're trying to camouflage critical race theory. They're trying to misdirect you. They're trying to make you think it's something else, that it's just a perspective on history, an academic study, something that's taught in law schools. As McAuliffe said, a conspiracy theory. We know that's false. And these questions will expose the reality of what critical race theory is. So question number one, can you define critical race theory? What is it? This question in and of itself trips up adherence to critical race theory. Because to define it, you have to either acknowledge that it's racist, or you have to acknowledge that it's Marxist, or your third option is that you're lying about what it is. So can you define critical race theory? What is it specifically? Question number two. These build on each other, by the way. Question number two. Do you think it's racist to judge someone based solely on the color of their skin? Remember, that's what critical race theory does. It views everything and everybody through the prism of skin color first. So therefore, if it's racist to judge someone based solely on the color of their skin, which it is, isn't critical race theory racist? This is a critical question because it leaves leftists in a lose-lose. Either they're admitting they're racist or they're lying about critical race theory. And they don't want to admit either. Again. These questions build on each other. Question number three, who was the architect of critical theory? Critical theory being the grandfather of critical race theory. It goes critical theory, and then it evolved into critical legal studies, and then it evolved into critical race theory. Who was the architect of critical theory? The answer to this is Max Horkheimer at the Frankfurt Institute in Germany in the 1930s. He was the second director of that school. He wrote the manifesto on critical theory, It then evolved further. It was taken a step further by Antonio Gramsci, who was the head of the Italian Communist Party. And then it was brought to the United States and evolved into critical race theory by Herbert Marcuse, who was Max Horkheimer's assistant, who Horkheimer left in the United States after Horkheimer and his cronies came here to escape the Nazis. They went back to Germany after the fall of the Nazi regime. Marcuse stayed here at Columbia University. So ask leftists. Who was the architect of critical race theory, the grandfather of critical theory, and how did it come to the United States? If they don't know the answer to this, their choice is either they lie about it, or if they're ignorant, ask them, how can you talk about something when you know nothing about it? Okay, number four. Again, each one builds on the last one. Question number four, what is the goal 
of critical theory and critical race theory. The ultimate goal. It's not equality under the law. It's not a new perspective on history. The goal of critical theory, as written by the authors, is Marxism. Marxism by way of tearing down the social institutions and beliefs adhered to, and I'm using the language of the founders here, adhered to by the so-called oppressed. Because the belief of the architects of critical theory believed that the workers did not stage a revolution against the elite because of the social institutions and the social beliefs that they adhered to. Those beliefs were an impediment to the revolution. So the goal of critical theory and critical race theory is Marxism by way of tearing down the institutions adhered to by the oppressed that prevent them from revolting. Okay. Number five, question number five. Can you describe the difference between equality and equity? This is very important because you hear this all the time from social justice warriors calling for equity. The word in and of itself is very similar to equality, so it's easy to let that sleight of hand miss your consciousness. It's extremely important to define the difference. Define equality, define equity. The essence of equality versus equity is equality is equal opportunity, equity is equal outcome. Equal outcome requires discrimination against someone. Someone has to be held back so that the result of everybody's activity and everybody's life is equal. So somebody is going to be the subject of discrimination based on an immutable characteristic. This is a very important distinction in these definitions because critical theory and critical race theory and the adherents of critical race theory constantly talk about equity versus equality. They want equity, they're done with equality. Make them define it. Finally, question number six. Do you believe America is fundamentally good or evil? They won't be able to answer this question because you and I would most likely say, well, America is fundamentally good with flaws. We've applied our fundamental principles imperfectly, but good with flaws. I don't believe the other side believes this. Adherents of critical race theory believe that America and everything on which she was founded, a free market system, freedom and liberty and justice for the individual, equality under the law. They believe that that is evil. They believe that the institutions in our nation are evil and therefore our country in general is illegitimate. So ask, do you believe America is fundamentally good or evil and why? If you ask these questions, this is how to dialogue with someone who is an adherent to critical race theory. This is how to really get down to the heart of the matter. What is critical race theory? Because right now, the left is scared. The left is on defense. The left is trying to camouflage what this evil Marxist ideology that they have put in public schools, they've infiltrated our public school system. They're now brainwashing our children. They're trying to hide what they're doing and pretend that what they're teaching isn't what they're teaching, which means they know that it's unpopular and people will reject it. Do not let them change from defense to playing offense. Do not let their rhetoric change anybody's mind. Keep moving forward. Ask these questions. Make them define what they're talking about. Catch them in their lies. The six questions you should ask about critical race theory. They're right there. Okay. Hunter Biden said the N-word. Yep. 
In text messages, reportedly, Hunter Biden's text messages show him calling his attorney the N-word. I think his attorney is white. He calls his attorney the N-word, and he was texting other weird things, like telling his attorney stuff like, I only like you because you're black, even though his attorney is white. Hunter Biden, as we know, a very messed up, disturbed individual, obviously has a drug problem. I feel compassion on the personal sense for that, but that doesn't excuse his horrible behavior. Imagine for one second if Donald Trump Jr., use the N-word in an old text message to an attorney. Can you even imagine? This would be wall to wall. Probably President Trump would have had to step down if Donald Trump Jr. was caught using a racial slur, a derogatory term for someone based only on the color of their skin. But when Hunter Biden texts the N-word, the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, and CNN, they ignored the story, completely ignored it. They didn't even bother to excuse it. They just ignored it. If, that's, if that double standard doesn't shock you, it should. It should. We should not let ourselves get desensitized to the double standard of the mainstream media. We should never let them get away with this. We should never let this go unnoticed. It's also, by the way, culturally hypocritical. There are two examples in popular culture where a white person used the N-word not in a situation where it was intended as a racial slur towards someone else specifically, but use the N-word just in the course of their activity. And don't get me wrong, I do not think anybody should use the N-word under any circumstance. It's a racial slur, it's disgusting, it's wrong, right? But Hannah Brown from The Bachelorette, she did an Instagram video of herself singing a rap song. The N-word's in rap songs all the time. She sang the lyrics as they were written. Therefore, she sang the N-word. She was just about canceled. She had to come out and apologize and say, you know, that she had white privilege, that she had to re-educate herself. She was off social media for a while. This was like a big cultural deal that she had sung the N-word as it pertained to the lyric of a song where the N-word was in that lyric. And cult the culture, popular culture, barely let her back. They barely forgave her for this. Likewise, country music star Morgan Wallen was caught on video. I think one of his neighbors had videotaped him coming home. He was coming home really late after a party. I think they were all drunk. He and his friends were drunk. His neighbor videotaped them from next door. And Morgan Wallen, when he was getting out of the car, called his white friends the N-word. Again, he shouldn't. It's a disgusting word. Morgan Wallen, subsequently, after this videotape was released, he was disinvited from all of the, all the awards, all the country music awards. Disinvited. Radio stations across the country stopped playing his music because he had called his white friends the N-word. He has still not fully reintegrated into the country music scene. There are a lot of people who want him permanently canceled because he was caught by a neighbor late at night, drunk, calling his white friends the N-word. But when it's Hunter Biden, crickets. The Democrats do not care. The Democrats, not only do they not care about Hunter Biden, the Democrats don't truly care about racism. If they did, they would speak out against Joe Biden's history of racism, and they certainly would speak out about Hunter Biden's use of the N-word. But Joe Biden's history of racism here has been completely ignored by the so-called anti-racists. Remember the things that Joe Biden has said recently. He said, if you don't know who to vote for between Trump and Biden, then you ain't black. As if your whole identity is not only tied up in your skin color, but if you're betraying your race if you vote for a Republican, if you're a black person. I mean, beyond insulting.
This is the same man who said that Mitt Romney would put you all back in chains if he won the presidency. The Democrats do not care about racism. If they did, they'd speak out against abortion. Tens of millions of black babies have been aborted since Roe v. Wade became legal. Abortion clinics specifically are placed within walking distance of minority neighborhoods. Black women are targeted. If the Democrats cared about racism, if they cared about black lives, they'd speak out about black on black violence. The fact that the majority of homicides in our country are committed by black men against other black men. But they don't say anything. The Democrats are silent. Democrat-led cities have the highest crime rate and highest unemployment rate, and that hurts black Americans the most. Inner city schools are failing more than any other schools, and yet Democrats don't support school choice, meaning that disadvantages, disproportionately disadvantages black students. If Democrats cared about black lives, if Democrats cared about racism, they would speak out on these topics, but they don't. Instead, they're very honest with us. The Democrats are actually very honest, very blunt, very bold. They're bold in their silence. When Joe Biden or Hunter Biden's racist, they stay quiet. And they're bold in their support for critical race theory, which teaches children that we should view people first and foremost because of their skin color, not their content of their character. If Democrats cared about racism, they would speak out against that, but they don't because they don't care about racism. And that is why they're silent about Hunter Biden using the N-word. Speaking of reporting things the Democrats don't want you to know, if for some reason big tech kicks me off once and for all, I won't be silenced, of course, so I wanna make sure that I have the ability to stay in touch with you. That's why I'm asking you today to subscribe to our email list at lizwheelershow.com. If you wanna make sure that you never lose access to the Liz Wheeler Show and all the content that I deliver here to you every day, then please join my email list. It's very important to me that we can stay in touch if that ever does happen to us, because regardless, I'm here to stay. This is my calling, this is what I love. Somebody needs to speak reality, I will never be quiet. So go to lizwheelershow.com and drop your email address so that I can still reach out to you if, or God forbid when, Big Tech finally pulls the plug on me. lizwheelershow.com, drop your email address. Can I just say, I know Mitch McConnell is an establishment Republican and I don't agree with him ideologically on a lot of stuff, but sometimes I just love Cocaine Mitch. Cocaine Mitch, I think, is his alter ego when he will not back down, and I love and respect that so much. In this case, Mitch McConnell says that if the Republicans uh, regain control of the Senate in 2024, or in 2022, that he would, as Senate Majority Leader, block a Supreme Court Justice nominee of Biden's if it were to happen in 2024. You just, you can't make this up. It doesn't get better than this. So the Democrats, of course, are freaking out. They're saying, well, that's so unfair because Mitch McConnell allowed Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing to go forward. He brought that to vote. She was confirmed just days before President Trump lost the election to Joe Biden. And that's true. That's true. But here's why it's different. And this is what I love about cocaine Mitch. He doesn't let the Democrats bully him. He doesn't back down on the issues that we do agree on. So first of all, the president of the United States, we established this with President Trump. The president of the United States has the authority vested in him by the US Constitution to nominate justices to the Supreme Court, period. There's no caveat in the Constitution that says, well, he has that authority except during an election year. No, the president of the United States, no matter who it is, has the authority 
to nominate a justice to the Supreme Court even during an election year. He's allowed to do that. If I were President Trump, I would have done the same thing that he did with Amy Coney Barrett. If I'm Joe Biden, I'd do the same thing. I would nominate a justice, a potential justice, during an election year. And if I'm Mitch McConnell, I'd let President Trump nominate, and I'd hold a hearing, and I'd confirm. And if President Biden does the same thing, I would not hold a hearing, and I would not confirm. And that doesn't make me hypocritical, because here's why. It's not a violation of the so-called McConnell rule. So the McConnell rule is actually not the McConnell rule. It was started, you just cannot make up this irony, it was started by Joe Biden in 1992. It's a tradition of the Senate. It's not a hard and fast rule. It's called a norm, right? It's a norm. According to Joe Biden, back in 1992, a president should not nominate a new Supreme Court justice during an election year if, this caveat is hugely important, if the White House and the Senate are controlled by different parties. So it's not just a matter of the president of the United States not nominating a Supreme Court justice during an election year. The Joe Biden rule from 1992, the norm, says that the president shouldn't nominate a new Supreme Court justice during an election year if the White House and the Senate are controlled by different parties. So hypothetically, 2024 comes around, presidential election year. Joe Biden's the president. Mitch McConnell and the Republicans control the Senate. What should Joe Biden do? Well, he's allowed, certainly, to make an appointment. He's allowed to nominate somebody. But should Mitch McConnell hold a hearing? Should that nominee be confirmed? Absolutely not. Mitch McConnell is well within his right not to hold a hearing. And he shouldn't, because Joe Biden, if he's going to nominate somebody, it's going to be a radical leftist who doesn't respect the Constitution. We don't want a person like that on the Supreme Court especially a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. And if Mitch McConnell does that, it doesn't violate a thing. It would be Joe Biden who would be violating the norm that he set back in 1992. This is a president should not nominate a Supreme Court justice during an election year if the White House and the Senate are controlled by different parties. It's called nuance. This is why when you make rules or make up traditions, when you set norms, you need to make sure that it's not going to come back to bite you. And the Democrats are the kings of this. They always make up rules that benefit themselves in the moment, and then they whine and cry when it comes back to bite them later. Well, Cocaine Mitch, stand strong. This is the right thing to do. This next story is absolutely chilling. A North Korean defector. She defected at age 13. She escaped North Korea at age 13 with her mother into China. She was subsequently sold into sex slavery. She then made her way back to South Korea and then here to the United States where she attended an Ivy League school. This woman, Yeonmi Park, says that the wokeness she experienced in the Ivy League schools in the United States was crazier than North Korea. Think about that for a second. Think about that for a second. She said it was regarding several things. She was talking about how to think. And how in the United States, students in schools are taught how to think, or supposedly taught how to think. In North Korea, they're not. This is what she said, and I quote, I expected that I was paying this fortune to attend the school, all this time and energy to learn how to think. But they're forcing you to think the way they want you to think. I realized, wow, this is insane. I thought America was different, but I saw so many similarities to what I saw in North Korea that I started worrying. She also said she experienced racialism here. 
She told a story about during orientation, she talked about how much she liked Jane Austen's books. Also, by the way, a personal favorite of mine. She said, quote, I said, I love those books. I thought it was a good thing. And the professor said, did you know that those writers had a colonial mindset? They were racists and bigots and are subconsciously brainwashing you. That's what this North Korean defector was told. She was told too to use transgender pronouns and she said, quote, English is my third language. I learned it as an adult. I sometimes still say he or she by mistake and now they're going to ask me to call them they? How the heck do I incorporate that into my sentences? She said it feels like a regression in civilization. And this is the one that, it, it gave me the goosebumps on my arms when I read this. She talked about in North Korea how they peddle delusion and ignore reality. She said, and I quote, in North Korea, I literally believed that my dear leader, Kim Jong-un, was starving. She said, but he's the fattest guy. How can anyone believe that? And then someone showed me a photo and said, look at him, he's the fattest guy. Other people are all thin. And I was like, oh my God, why did I not notice that he was fat? Because I never learned how to think critically. She said, this is what's happening in America. People see things, but they've just completely lost the ability to think critically. If you hear this story, and this doesn't give you the chills, this isn't a warning bell clanging in our country, then maybe you need to hear this too. This woman is a survivor of Mao's China. And she spoke, she spoke about critical race theory. Listen to what she had to say. I've, I've been very alarmed about what's going on in our school. You are now teaching, training our children to be social justice warriors and to loathe our country and our history. Uh, growing up in Mao's China, all this seemed very familiar. The uh, communist regime used the same critical theory to divide people. The only difference is they use class instead of race. During the Cultural Revolution, I witnessed students and teachers again, turn against each other. We changed school names to be politically correct. Um, we were taught to denounce our heritage. The Red Guards destroyed anything that is not communist. Old uh, statues, books, and anything else. We are also encouraged to report on each other, just like the uh, Student Equity Ambassador Program and the Bias Reporting System. This is indeed the American version of the Chinese Communist, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. The critical race theory has its roots in cultural Marxism. It should have no place in our school. This is the point that we're at in our country. It takes people who are literally oppressed their lives were threatened, they were victims of communism, to warn these wokesters in the United States that they're doing the same thing. My fellow Americans, do not let this happen. Let this be a warning to us. Do not go on defense. We must play offense. We must restore and reclaim the institutions in our country that underpin our moral society, that protect our freedom and, our, and liberty and the idea of justice for all, equality under the law. Crazy episode tomorrow. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You do not want to miss what happened to me today. We will be talking about that tomorrow. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Write us a glowing review. You want to be notified when this episode drops. In the meantime, think for yourself. Use critical thought. Reject critical theory. Question authority. Follow the facts. And do not let government or corporate wokeism or cultural Marxism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. But we're not done yet. 
This next segment is for locals, VIPs only. You will not hear this story on the big tech platform. So join us at lizwheelershow.com slash locals for locals, VIPs only. This is an absolutely stunning mask study. If you want to see the rest of this segment, hear everything that we're going to talk about, head on over to Locals, the Liz Wheeler Show community at lizwheelershow.com slash locals. See you there. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Stephen Reyes. Assistant editor, Michael Wall. Assistant editor, Tommy Weber. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-production manager, Victoria Metzl. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. And production assistant, Mickey Pisani. This has been a Soundfront production.